This is the Untamed Ethos Podcast. Join us as investment pros, executives, and other experts talk business, personal growth, investing, politics, and the trending topics well-rounded pros need to know about. Authentic, unfiltered, and fun. Joshua Wilson is the founder of United Ethos Wealth Partners, a registered investment advisor. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of United Ethos's investment advice on this podcast, and nothing you'll hear on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. All opinions expressed by Joshua and by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of United Ethos or its affiliates. Welcome back to the Untamed Ethos podcast. I am Joshua Wilson, and with me as usual, my co-host, Dr. Vix, Russell Rhodes. And uh, today we have a very special guest. I've been looking forward to having Dr. Megan Lertz uh, on the episode today. I've been interested in, in, in getting uh, her on the episode because uh, not only is she an academic, but she's very practical. Um, she provides specific applicable advice on how to execute. And this is, you know, one of the themes that always comes up when we talk to academics is, ah, is this just theory? And Meg does a great job of saying, okay, here's how you apply it. Here's something you can do. Here's specific words um, and phrases and not just the big picture strategy. So um, she is uh, a uh, professor of practice at Kansas State University. Uh, she has a background in industrial uh, organizational psychology, um, which, uh, you know, for those of you who, uh, who, who are not familiar with that, it's basically, you know, we understand that humans have biases. We understand that uh, there's cognitive biases, behavioral biases. And so, you know, Meg's background in industrial organizational um, psychology is basically saying, you know, how do, um, how, how is psychology applied to organizations to improve their outcomes for the organization? And then she also got, you know, really gets this down into the individual relationship with client to customer and, and, customer, and, and client to the firm, um, things like that. And then, of course, she did a, a PhD in, uh, I believe, in financial planning and financial therapy at Kansas State. So, you know, she's taken this psychology and then this kind of specific application to financial planning. Um, and, you know, the great thing about, I think, this this stuff is it's broadly applicable. And, you know, 98, when I, when I hear, when I was talking to Megan uh, before, it's I've, I kept thinking, you know, 99% of everything she's saying is applicable to everything else. It's just that she focuses in on on financial planning, which makes it of key interest to me, and especially in that in, the, in that applicable um, applicable stuff. So, uh, my pleasure to welcome Dr. Megan Lertz to the show today. Oh, also, she is—I forgot to mention—she is a senior researcher uh, at KiteSees.com. Uh, and if you are from the financial planning world, you've heard of KiteSees.com. I think if it's not the most, it's definitely up there, uh, one of the most read. Uh, financial websites out there, especially directed at financial planners. Mm -hmm. uh, so great, great honor to have you uh, on the show today, Megan. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, Megan, um, you know, I gave you, the, I, I kind of gave your background here and kind of your interests, but tell me a little bit about in your research, what problems are you trying to solve? 
Uh, so I spend a lot of time talking to advisors, whether it's through the different universities that I teach at and, and even the different universities, like a lot of the students at Columbia University are coming from larger broker dealers or wirehouses, which are different from my K-State students who all tend to be uh, small independent RIAs. Um, so even the advisors differences between the two schools, I obviously interact with a lot of financial advisors through the Kitsis platform. Um, and I interview advisors all the time. I'm always like every quarter, I have sort of a different research agenda, if you want, where I do uh, like a standard interview with uh, anywhere between like 15 and 20 advisors on a particular topic. And the reason I do this is because I'm very curious about how advisors experience their work, experience their relationship with their clients, the problems that they see. And then, you know, I, from a slightly different lens, look at what it is that they're talking about and try to come up with different types of ways to solve for that. Like a, a recent article that I wrote that people seem to like quite a bit was, um, I was talking about the plan presentation meeting and advisors were kind of telling me that these meetings are arduous, you know, they're really long. I have to get through a lot of stuff. I'm a fiduciary. I got to say all these things, you know, and the client, well, client and or prospect, depending on how your process works, uh, you know, sometimes they just kind of glaze over. They're just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was like, gosh, man, all these advisors are describing this and they're talking about it. And I've had a very similar experience teaching like investments. You know, you're teaching like the Black-Scholes model or, I don't know, efficient market hypothesis. And students are like, yeah, yeah, Dr. Lertz, I get it. And you're there's kind of like, and then you just going to be on the test. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, OK, you didn't get it. So, um, you know, and you go back. But so in. In education, what I've done is it's called flipped classroom where I record my lectures and then we actually go over problems in class so that I can we can pick up faster what is it they're not understanding and make it more life applicable. Plan presentation meetings can also be like this. Like you can record, you know, five minute videos about, you know, why would we do tax efficient tax loss harvesting or what is it what does it mean to have diversification in your portfolio or lack thereof? Like what what is uh, a quadro? Like, you know, just things like that, that we know in financial planning, but maybe don't, you know, the client doesn't know, or the client's less familiar with this. Well, if we could record a few short videos, could we get, could we get greater engagement in the plan presentation? So moving from plan presentation meeting to a plan engagement meeting, but that whole idea for that entire article, you know, came from spending time with advisors, hearing about what is working for them, hearing about what is not working for them. And then for me to, you know, go back to the land of academia and like search for theories and try to make connections and like what's, you know, what's really going on here and be able to provide a, a more useful framework. Sometimes it's a framework, sometimes it's a set of questions, sometimes it's just ideas, like a different way to look at the same issue. It's hard to know. I mean, advisors don't go to school to be therapists. Advisors don't go to be psychologists. Advisors don't go to school to be efficient. They don't go to school to be Russell, you know, like they, they go to school a lot, my students, to be financial planners. And that's a different thing. It's a different skill set. And so if I can bring knowledge from my skill sets to them without them having to spend another 12 years in school, great. You know, that's that's what I see my job as, is kind of being a pracademic, you know, standing, standing on both sides of the line. 
Yeah, but, but without staying in in the practitioner world, you, you're going to get disjointed from it very quickly. You know, I, I think that, you know, you're actually teaching people that are in it to, they know they want to become financial planners. This is relatively new. Um, I mean, it's out, we hear the term financial planner all the time now, but this idea of being a financial planner as far as being um, widespread and everybody knows what it is. Everybody still doesn't know what it is, first off. And most people that are coming, you know, into being an advisor, and I'm using the term planner and advisor interchangeably, that's not type, that's not really correct, right? Everybody that advises doesn't necessarily plan. Um, but most people that are becoming advisors and then planners, they're really coming from, they do finance, they do economics, they do something like this. And so, you know, I've, I talk to my students and I say, you know, when you say you're going to be a financial advisor, what do you think you're, what do you think you'll be doing all day? And it's usually, they think that they're going to be researching stocks and funds and things like this. I say, who you're going to give advice to? Like, you're going to have to figure out who you're going to give advice to and convince them that they should take your advice. So a lot of this comes down to, you know, the dirty word sales, but, I I think that that's kind of something that we have to get out of sales is a bad thing. Sales is nothing to me besides communicating with humans. That's what sales is. It's just practical strategies for communicating with humans. Um, you know, you, you're married and have two kids. You're selling all the, all, all day long. You got to, you got to learn how to sell a four-year-old. <laughs> Eat her dinner. You can have gummy bears afterwards. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, Daniel Pink's book, everybody sells or something like yeah. everybody. Yeah. I mean, that was a great book. And, and to your point, yeah, I mean, there's been some interesting evolutions within financial planning, you know, because financial planning there are many things that, that we still do or the, the financial plan, financial planning community still does that are artifacts of being from a sales culture and, uh, and, and being purely product sales, which those things still exist, but we also have financial planning now and that's done in multiple ways. And I'm not at all, like I'm pretty agnostic on the different ways that it can be done. I think people need insurance. And if all you're doing is selling a financial plan that people don't implement, I would argue that the insurance is far more useful than the plan that people don't implement. So I, I, every, everybody sells and understanding how to do it. I also think there's a big difference between, um, you know, selling a product, which again, I have no issue with, but a lot of financial planners, they're trying to sell a relationship. I mean, we know from therapy, we know from the medical field, I've even done some research within financial planning but it doesn't matter how great your plan is if the relationship through which the plan is being delivered is a relation SHIT, not a relationship, you know, you're not going to have, you're not going to have a great outcome on the other end. Just like if you have a jerky doctor, that's like, he can give you the best medical advice or she can give you the best medical advice on the planet. But because the relationship is so bad, you're just like, I don't, I don't want to listen to that person. And so you don't, you don't do what you're intending to do. Financial planning is the same way. And that, you know, the, the interest in financial psychology. And so that, that's it. There's even an interesting difference there. So there's behavioral economics, which is like a big Russell shaking his head. Yes. Like 
behavioral economics is just a behavior. It's just a decision-making theory. This is how we make all decisions, all decisions. And then there are a bunch, there's like a bunch of finance people came along and they're like, oh, let's look at it. Like, let's like apply all the things that we know from behavioral economics just in finance. And we call that behavioral finance or we call that uh, financial psychology. There's also, you know, moving beyond that, like most of that is research from the 70s and 80s. We are in 2023. More research now is being done on, okay, yes, we know that these biases and heuristics exist. We know that people make decisions in a goofy way. The psychology of financial planning, you know, is kind of now a new discipline or financial therapy is a new discipline. Um, and, and our interests there, the research interests there are given these things, how can, how can we actually help people? Like it's one thing to know what's wrong with someone. It's another thing to know how to support them through that. And so a lot of what my classes are about, like what I write about on the platform, what I teach about, what I, what I do my own research on is, are, you know, are those interventions getting beyond just a list of heuristics or biases, but how do we actually support somebody? How, like, it doesn't help to tell someone, oh, you know, Joshua, you're just, you're just overconfident, you know, good luck with that decision. <laughs> you, you're going to get fired. And I mean, that one sounds really obvious. But but then how do you work with overconfidence? Well, there's there's research that says how to do that. And so I think that it's Im important to understand that how research has evolved um, to let you know more and more financial advisors be aware that that research that is can be more helpful for the way they run their practice and where they work with people. Um, the CFP board in particular has put out there was first client psychology, which was kind of like the behavioral stuff. Now, now they've put a big push for the psychology of financial planning. And it is this understanding that your relationship with your client is the most statistically significant, important factor in whether or not this plan is actually implemented. Yeah. And, and, and this gets back to it's, it's not about being correct. You know, traditional finance, traditional economics is about what is correct. You're trying to define it with numbers. And so when you come at this from a rational lens, which traditional economics does, this assumption of homo economicus, the rational person, right, um, is that if you know the answer that you'll make the correct decision based on one plus, if you know one and you know plus and you know one, then you will always choose the correct answer too. And behavioral economics comes around and says, well, humans aren't always rational. And here's all these ways we've understood that humans aren't rational. And what you're really, you're all you're saying is, hey, we actually know now more about actually how to do behavioral interventions. And this happens a lot when I notice when I have conversations with advisors is when you bring up behavioral uh, or behavioral finance, it's, oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. And because everyone's heard of, you know, of attribution bias and everyone's had the introduction to behavioral, behavioral finance now. And so we know the, the errors that people make, but like you said, it's not, it, it is in the execution, not in the knowledge. I often tell my students um, that, you know, that the real world is very different than the academy. And we need to hear this because in the academy, it's you scored 100 percent that you understood 100 percent of these concepts. That doesn't tell me what you can apply. You know, I can uh, I can read a book 
Like I, I don't golf. I can read a book on golf and be taught how to swing a club and how to hold the club and all these things. And it's like, oh yeah, I could pass a test. I'm, I know everything about golf, pass every test on golf. And I can't hit the ball off the tee 10 yards, right? Because execution is very different than, than knowledge. And I think that, that what's interesting about where we're, we're getting now is these practical application of, okay, here's actually how you address this. Here's what you actually can, um, you know, can, can, can do to address this. But that's not just client change, right? Part of that, part of that is, is, is requiring advisor change. Talk to me about that because, you know, there's, there's this difference in how can I get the client to do what I want to help them get their better outcome, but it's probably going to require some change from me too. Yeah, I tend to tell my students and or advisors that I meet, you know, you are 100% responsible for your 50% of that relationship. And so, it's, yeah, recognizing that we, we are a part of what's happening. So like a common example that I give, because markets are always bananas, you know, they're always doing something that people are nervous about. And um, so it's very common for advisors to get phone calls from nervous clients. And normally our reaction to that is from a good place. Hey, you're feeling nervous. Like, let's come in. Let's take a look at your portfolio. We can, you know, run 7,000 million versions of your Monte Carlo analysis. And we'll, we'll make sure, you know, that you're still in like the 90% range or whatever. One way to do it. But oftentimes what advisors say is that they'll come in, they'll have the client come in, they'll do that. And the client will be like, but what about that 4%? Or, you know, this is only looking at historical stuff, assuming it's a very smart client. This is only looking at historical stuff. You know, this, this time it's different. You know, we're talking about this. We're talking about that. There's no way that that can predict this. You're right. So instead of doing that, because we know that when we give advice to people that are in like fight, flight, fear mode, all they do is push back. It's different this time. It's not like that. You're not understanding. You just don't get it. You can, you can give the best advice in the world and they will still be like, nope. So instead, try this. You'll be scared the first time you do it, but I promise it works. The client calls. They're freaking out. You're like, man, thank you so much for calling. You know, I, you can come in. We can, we can go through your portfolio, but I want to I ask you something. It's a little bit, it's a little bit weird. And they'll be like, okay. And you'll be like, is it all right if I ask? And they'll be like, yeah, sure. So nobody ever says no. And then say, this is going to sound strange, but what if your, if your best friend called you later today and they, they were expressing the same fear, they're not sure what's going on in the market, you know, what's going on, what would you say to them? And they'll typically, because they've been your client for a while, say things like, well, you should turn off the TV. You know, you, you shouldn't worry your, your portfolio is well-balanced or, to, you know, totally diversified. Uh, you should call your financial planner. The client will literally start listing off all of the things that you were about to tell them because they've been your client for so long. So then they get to the end of their list and you're like, wow, that's a great list. Like I'm trying to think of other things. Um, you know, knowing, knowing that you know all that, what else can we talk about? And people will usually be like, you know, I don't know, or I feel a lot better. <laughs> a lot of times they laugh because they realize that they've just talked themselves off the cliff. This is the recognition of knowing, knowing what's happening, that people are irrational and people freak out and like stuff is scary. 
And knowing that you're 50% of the relationship is knowing how to hold that space, knowing how to take care of that client. And the problem with the situation you're talking about right there is those calls all tend to come in as cl in big clumps when, when, you know, we're having a couple of bad days in the overall markets. And that's it. That's when the irrationality actually increases, not just among the professionals, but also the, the clients. And, you know, it, I, I, the, the closest I've ever come to being a financial advisor was a small hedge fund where we hired a guy who his job was to field those calls so we could do the rest. Of, we could do our jobs, basically. And he'd sit around and do nothing for you know a couple of weeks sometimes when everything was going well. But we have a couple of bad days. Uh, and we ran a long, short mutual fund so people could see the numbers from day to day, even if they were in the hedge fund. Um, thank goodness we had him uh, as that buffer because uh, when I did my in my dissertation, some of this, some of it's behavioral finance oriented. And I remember that uh, on average, the number of inbound calls goes up threefold on a bad day in the markets. And that's the day that you want to be. You know, that's the day that you don't want to be it. I, I'll use a sports analogy. When somebody's got a perfect game going, nobody talks to them on the bench. That's because they need to focus. And do you really think you're helping your advisor calling him when the market's down 7% in a day? Yeah. Uh, you can't say that to him, but you know, do you want me managing your money or, or trying to make you feel better about yourself? Well, I wouldn't say it that way, but that's what I have in the back of my mind. Yeah. yeah. The flip side of that is that once you get people to embrace some of their self-efficacy, so, I mean, you have to think about agency self-efficacy. Are we teaching our advisors or our clients like a, an aspect of almost like learned helplessness that they have to call us because they don't know the answer. But you have a couple of bad runs where you use the question that I just said, and you teach people that they actually do know the answer and that they will be okay. And you get them to say it with their own mouths. You will have less and less of those phone calls every time. And certainly you'll have less and less of those people that actually still want to come in and meet. So yeah, if you want to, you know, be frivolously work, like, you know, working frantically on like tax loss harvesting and things like that, when we have fun market dips, you know, I get it, but like, you still have to deal with the behavior side too. And the more that we teach clients that they have agency, that they are, you know, they have financial self-efficacy, then the less scared they become. It's, it's because they become so reliant on the advisor that they are afraid. And it's not teaching them to think they can do it all by themselves. It's just letting them relax a little bit, you know, in the fact that they do know that they're going to be okay. You know, I think that when we think about this, behavioral finance poorly applied is basically telling people they're being emotional. <laughs> that doesn't go everywhere well. The or irrational. Is, what's that? Or irrational. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, with with the emotions thing, no one wants to say, here's what I'm feeling right now. They want they have a feeling and then they the feeling is in this, you know, reptilian, you know, ancient brain. We have a feeling and then our speech is way closer to the prefrontal cortex. So we've got to filter these feelings through the the, the logical part of our brain and try to come up with a rationalization, 
not rational, but a rationalization of what we're feeling. And then behavioral finance poorly applied is basically saying, hey, you understand you're being emotional, you're being irrational, because, you know, uh, those words irrational and emotional, they're not exactly the same, but they can be pretty, pretty, pretty deeply linked there. How do you, what, what could you talk to me about, about how one, you understand the problem is emotional and you understand that's where it's coming from a point of emotion, but you can't just point it out as emotion. And a lot of times when someone is feeling something, they come at you with a very rational question. And, and so you want to answer it rationally, whereas it's, what you hear is, and, um, and I think this happens a lot in relationships, um, in, in, in personal relationships, is one person says, why did you do X? And the other person answers a very rational, logical answer, but that doesn't meet the emotional need. The emotional need was, I don't feel like you've paid a lot of attention to me today. I, I'm, I'm feeling kind of lonely. I'm feeling kind of undervalued. And it's, Hey, why were why were you reading that book? Like, well, I was reading it because I'm interested in it, but that has nothing to do with the reason I really asked, you know. So, what I'm getting at is is getting kind of getting past this. And I know I'm at a long rambling question, but to, to, to go for it. It's a very okay. good question, and it happens all 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 the time. Like, no, nobody ever says something for no reason. We, we don't just walk around just like saying words, you know? And so there's, there's, think of it like an iceberg. This is kind of the best way I've ever seen it described. There's what people say, that's the top. There's what they meant and how they feel. And so here, here's like a twofer. This is where it gets kind of fun. So in, we know, so there was this great study <laughs> by like some of these research nerds, which doesn't surprise me that they were studying speed dating, but that's beside the point. So they were studying speed dating and they wanted to know who gets a second date. So they, they had this like huge regression and the, old, the thing that was statistically significant was who asks good follow-up questions. That was what got people a second date. And it's important to differentiate between not just any follow-up question, but one that keeps it on them. Like, so here's the difference between this. A client comes in and they say something like, hey, I, I finally booked that ticket to Rome or to, to, we'll say to Italy. And the advisor goes, oh my gosh, that's great. Are you going to go to Rome? And the client's like, I don't know. And he goes, and the advisor says, well, I've been to Rome. You know, don't, don't miss the Coliseum. It's dope. Okay. Like we do that all the time, you know, and it, again, this is coming from a really good place. The advisor wants to make sure that they see the Coliseum. Cool. The other way that this could have gone, and this is, this is the follow-up question way, the way that gets you a second date is that they come in, they say, I booked that, the, the trip to Italy. And the advisor's like, oh my God, Italy. Awesome. Where are you going to go? And so then the client gets to be like, Rome, you know, I'm going to see the Colosseum. And then you just keep asking them questions about their experience. The same thing can be applied. This actually happened to me. I was having a really rough week. And my one of my friends calls. She's got two kids. I have two kids. It's like noon. And I'm talking about how I'm ineffectively working and like my kids are sick and I'm getting sick. And she's like, dude, kids are hard. Just just have a glass of wine. I started drinking. It's fine. And I'm like, cool. Thanks, friend. Thanks, friend. 
later on, my friend who is a marriage and family therapist, Dr. Megan McCoy, who also teaches with me at K-State, she calls. I rattle off that, you know, this is just a crazy week. And she goes, wow, Meg, that sounds really hard. How are you coping? Imagine, like, feel the hear the difference between how people feel supported and the power of a follow-up question. Now to what you said and the, the, like what people say, what they mean and how they feel. When you ask, so people say like, I don't like, uh, I have four 401ks. Great. You know, like, uh, you know, why, you know, why was sharing that important? Well, I'm feeling really disorganized, you know, about the fact that I have four or I'm feeling wealthy. <laughs> I've got four. You know, who knows why they said that? We're not sure what they meant. And you can also, then they say, you know, I'm a little bit confused or it just feels like there's like a lot going on and I'm not quite sure like what's going on in one. Like, are my investments the same in this one as in this one? I just, I just have a lot of confusion about that. Okay, I hear you saying that you're feeling confused. You know, would it be helpful if we look at all those together? Like, are you wanting to consolidate them? Asking them some more follow-up questions. You're now learning more about their problem because if you don't ask, not only are you not as likable, but your brain, because our brains are awesome, will start to fill in stories. You'll be thinking, they just wanted me to think they're cool because I have they have four 401ks. Like, what a jerk. You know, like maybe you'll, who knows what weird thing would pop into your mind about what they meant and what they're feeling. But if you take a step back and you say, every everybody, everything that everybody says is an iceberg. And we see this in our private lives too. You know, this, this happened to me this past weekend. I, I, I was outside reading a book and I said to my husband who was inside, uh, who's messing around in the kitchen. And I said, do you want to come outside with me? And he's like, no, I'm doing, doing stuff in the kitchen. And I thought, I thought what an a-hole, you know, like I'm clearly giving you a bid for attention and you're just like, no. And so I was mad. And I said, you know, I, I like you're. Why are you ignoring me? And he goes, whoa, not ignoring you. I'm working on stuff in the kitchen. It like, what is this about? And I go, well, I wanted to spend time with you. You know, I was asking you to come outside to be with me. He goes, I don't want to be outside. If you want to want us to be together, you know, why don't you just sit in the kitchen? I'll make you a sandwich or something. I was like, okay. You know, so did I say that? No, I said, I said, come outside. <laughs> what I meant, spend time with me. How I was feeling alone. And that all got twisted up. You know, so we, we do this constantly and, and we do this with our clients, whether we intend to do it or not. So ask follow-up questions that makes you more likable. And then you're less likely to use your wacky brain, which we know all brains don't work because you have a human one. Then, you know, like don't let your brain fill in the stories. Actually ask what they meant and how they feel about it. So Every time. So I want to make sure I'm defining what you mean by follow-up question. Yeah. And what I'm what I mean by that is, I mean, I think if I'm if I'm pushing through this fast, I'm like, well, I mean, of course I ask follow-up questions. I'll ask one question to stop. Every question is a follow-up question. But what I'm sensing from you is not every question is a follow-up question. This reminds me of uh, so I I taught. Uh, I was over the national sales training program at TD Ameritrade in my former life for a while. And one of the things I would talk about is be more curious. Stop making so many assumptions you're taking big leaps between questions and i think that you're missing a lot of things between these questions because you ask a question and then from that one question you 
get all these data points because you are calculating in your head that, hey, if if she says X, then Y is true 70% of the time. And you, know, you, so you just jump right past that and you check the box that you know the answer to these, these other things. So that's how I'm conceptualizing this is a follow-up question is a shorter step. That's how I'm thinking of it. But what, what do you mean by follow-up questions? And question one, what do you mean by that? And then number two, what makes a good follow-up question? So yes, there are, we can ask follow-up questions about situational things and continue to gather more data. And I'm, I'm arguing that for every piece of data that you get, there's probably also a situation and probably also a feeling. And some, and if you have the time and you want to create trustworthiness, if you want to create connection, asking, what do you mean by that? Or share with more with me about the situation around that. Like, why, why did they choose to tell you that they have 4401ks? Why? You know, and, and asking more about that, that, that for me is a follow-up question. You can certainly ask all kinds of questions. Another important aspect of the best type of follow-up questions, again, if we're using follow-up questions to uh, benefit the relationship, is that it stays focused on the person, that you're not asking a follow-up question to then be talking about yourself which we do all the time. Again, it's not, you're not an evil person and, it, and for what it's worth, it doesn't statistically significantly ruin your relationship. You know, it just doesn't build it. And so thinking about, you know, where and how you're asking follow-up questions, like if it's early in the relationship, maybe this is your first prospect meeting with them. Maybe it's the discovery meeting with them. You know, asking questions that build that connection you know, between the two of you uh, and not not trying to assume anything. Um, and certainly, you know, you can ask, like, maybe they mentioned that, uh, I don't know, they have restricted stock options or something like that. And you need to you need more information about that restricted stock option, maybe not even necessarily related to the situation or how they feel about it. You just want to know, like, what company it's from, when it's going to invest, like, you know, anything like that. Um, these are also useful questions to ask, but they don't build the relationship. So there's data, data questions, good data in, good data out, but all good data starts with a good question. Yeah. You know, I, I think that you're also thinking about the future. If you're assuming mm -hmm. that this is going to be your client, right. And if someone is, assuming they have the motivation to, to solve this problem. And one of the things I do want to get to here as we continue the conversation is when people get stuck, right? Um, but assuming they're moving forward, sometimes people can be logical and they're like, hey, I know I need to do something. I'm going to follow your process. I'm going to answer your questions and I'm going to sign up because I know that something has happened or, you know, people have these life moments and a lot of financial planning comes from life moments. And so it's, a retirement, a marriage, a divorce, uh, you know, moving to a different place, these types of things, and they people sit down with a planner and they sign up. And so it, it can seem very logical, all these questions, these situational informational questions can seem very logical. But then six months later, when the relationship is moving, then you're going to wish you to take a little bit more time and documented some more of the emotional needs of these things because once the rational getting got to get started, this is an item that I promised my spouse I would take care of. Six months later, we're invested and now we're feeling it's these are, these are going to be useful to us 
later. It's kind of that, that patience of saying, Hey, I may not need this today, but I'm probably going to, to need this at some point in the future. Yeah. I, I mean, our brains remember stories better yeah. than they do anything else. You know, yeah. so if you can have a more fully formed story, you know, about your client, you're going to be just better able to serve them because you'll recall things, you know, that without, you know, like nobody knows the year. Well, you guys might know, but I don't know the year off the top of my head that Abraham Lincoln died, you know, but I know that he was killed in Ford Theater. I know he was shot in the back of the head. You know, I know that he was with his wife. Like, I remember so many, like, I can recall so many things about that moment, but I can't recall this like single piece of data. And it has to do with the difference between data and stories. And so it's certainly a mix between the two. As an advisor, you need data, but that doesn't mean it has to be absent a story. And if you're trying to build that relationship and connection, you're going to want those stories. The other thing that can be really helpful, you know, in just thinking about using questions and follow-up questions, you know, this kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier, but relates to, you know, when clients get stuck is that uh, making change is hard. <laughs> you know, even if you want to make a change, that doesn't necessarily imply that you're ready to do it right now. The other thing is this, you mentioned it, you know, that people don't usually call a financial planner until there's like a problem. So it's not like people wake up on a Wednesday, like, yeah, feeling rich today, gonna call a stranger. You know, nobody says that, nobody feels that way. You know, and so they, they wait until something is so painful that they think that it sounds like a better idea to talk to a complete stranger about something that probably represents more than just the dollars and cents in their bank. Like this is about to get real intimate, real fast with somebody I don't know. That, that, they thought that was better. So recognize that, that even though they're sitting across from you and they're telling you that they want your help, that does not mean that their emotions actually match that. And so instead of trying to fight against that, like people will tell you, I know I need help. I know you're saying I need to save more. I know you're saying I need to do something with restricted stock options. And yet they kind of just keep dragging their feet. You can always stop and say, hey, you know, you, you told me that this is important to you. I'm down to help you. Um, I see that it's not working. You know, we're not making progress. Can you list off for me like the 10 reasons why it's still important? Getting them, again, this, this invokes their self-efficacy because you're just going to say, hey, remember you said that? And they're going to be like, yeah, I remember. Hey, remember you said that? Yeah, I remember. You know, like you don't want to be nagging them. Nobody, like, nobody likes that. But you can ask them to sort of stop and say, hey, tell me why this is still important to you. You know, now they're talking about all the reasons that it's important. You can invoke you know, intrinsic motivation through the types of questions that you ask so that you're not the bad guy, just reminding them of all the stuff they didn't do, which oftentimes you can even say, well, why haven't you done that? Well, now you're just going to make them list off the things that kept them from doing it. And what's that going to do? Just further solidify that they don't have time to do that. So what's more like, how, like, how are you thinking about getting them to talk about what it is that they are or are not doing? The other thing is that if this is the beginning of the relationship, starting to work with a complete stranger, figuring out like navigating the relationship that is now my professional financial relationship for a lot of people, this is the biggest change that they're willing to make 
for about six months, regardless of how great your advice is, just having to talk to you is a big change. And so just sitting, sitting in that for a moment and recognizing then, is there a different way? Cause you're 50% responsible for hundred percent of your part of this relate or 50, hundred percent responsible for the 50% of your relationship. How, how can you communicate better? What are the things that you can say that keep you from being the nagging person, but also try to get stuff done? You know, slowing down and thinking about that, being more methodical, understanding like how psychology works, understanding how people change and, and the role that we have. I've often said that we should just stop teaching algebra or at least trig and we should teach people the trans theoretical model of change. Imagine how nice people would be to one another if they understood the process of change and others' involvement in others' change. Changing is really hard, but we have lots of documented research on how people do it and how people need to be supported while doing it. The, you, you mentioned a word there that, that, I, that I've had in the back of my mind as you've been talking, and it's uh, condescending uh, and trying not to sound condescending because there's so much information out in the world now. I mean, I've gotten a couple of dozen ridiculous questions on how do I invest in AI? Because that's what's been out in the news. There's no way to really invest in AI right now. There's no way it's ever going to be really monetized. My, you know, my response is, uh, and, and this is, this would be condescending if I were an advisor, but uh, I'm just telling usually students this, um, there's no pure play in AI. Yeah, in fact, I personally, I think AI is about as, as important as blockchain was. Everybody thinks it's going to do something and, and it's like a cool technology that's, that's looking for problems to solve. And if I were a financial advisor and somebody said, I, I want to make sure I've got exposure to AI, uh, that response would not go over very well at all, you know, in the least. But because uh, everybody, it, it's so easy to find out anything about anything, whether or not it's correct or not on the internet now, I can only imagine that uh, if, if an advisor came out of a coma from 25 years ago to today, They'd be shocked at the knowledge level that they have to deal with now, whether that's a good knowledge level or a bad knowledge level, but uh, it's definitely a different knowledge level. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, yeah, I do know that advisors and CFAs in particular, you know, do get those phone calls from clients and, you know, instead of automatically responding with what your advice would be, I, I tell my students that it's uh, the kid's basketball rule. You have to have three questions, have to ask three questions or, you know, pass the ball three times. Before anybody can shoot, before you can give advice, you have to ask three questions before you can give advice. And what this can do is, you know, they call and say, I want to invest in AI. And like, wow, cool. All right, AI. Tell, you know, tell me a little bit more about what you've been reading. What are you thinking? And they say, yeah, you know, it's just like everybody's talking about it. And I feel like it's like the next big thing is so you could say, well, hey, do you remember when like blockchain came around? Like, you know, we were we were talking about that before, you know, and like we really thought that maybe like that would blow up. You know, like, tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I was just going to say blockchain was going to solve everything. You'd hear about it on earnings calls and everything else. I was working in an exchange at a time. Blockchain was going to be our whole back office system, which uh, after about 36 hours of, of looking into it, they decided, no, it, it actually won't work. Um, but yeah, that, you know, probably turning it around and, and asking, uh, how do you, th who do you think is going to benefit the most from AI and try to invest, invest in it in that, from that standpoint? Right, right. Um, There's all different ways, but starting yeah. with a question, like respecting the fact that you are talking to an adult 
who has probably done some sort of research, whether we agree that the research was good or not, you know, like they've done something, they've called you. So there's what they're saying, what it means and how they feel about it. So if you can get to some of that deeper part of the iceberg with a few follow-up questions, they feel heard, which is important for then if you're going to attempt to give advice. And it's a pretty easy formula, but you know, easier to, or maybe easier said than done, I suppose. I think it's helpful for a lot of folks in, in, when you're in teaching these types of strategies to change the context, because mm -hmm. that little bit of a shock of changing the context can sometimes make um, concepts and frameworks a lot simpler because it's like when we know something really well, we get so deep into the minutia. And so, for example, if it take an investment related question, I should, I'm, if I can switch this off to saying something very simple and like, let's say um, Megan asks me, I'm looking to buy an automobile. What do you think I should buy? This is a very different context. Well, I'm not an automobile expert, but I would probably have a few questions. I was like, well, what are you going to use it for? I wouldn't go, go into, well, I think that you should buy, you know, a, uh, a Mercedes Benz because of this, 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 and this, this is the model that I like. No, I would ask. You said an automobile, you're thinking like a car, you're thinking like a truck. Uh, what are you going to use it for? What's that? Lambo. Yeah, there you go. Lambo, great, great option. Uh, if you got the budget and you got the all these other things, right? Trying to get some more, <laughs> trying to get, trying to get uh, flashy, trying to get attention. If that's, if that's what your response was, well, I want to get as much attention as possible. And I want to be able to go really fast. And these, okay, well, maybe you should be thinking about a Lambo, right? But you wouldn't start with giving advice. You wouldn't start with giving an opinion. I wouldn't just say, well, I drive a Ram pickup truck and I really like it for these reasons. So I think you should buy one as well because no, I would ask some more questions. And I think that, there's that, that just that contextual change can kind of shake us and say, and make us realize, okay, I shouldn't be coming to so many assumptions with this. I really don't know enough about this. And so sometimes that becomes being more curious about, you know, even when someone asks a specific question, it's uh, what ETF should I buy for Bitcoin? Why ETF? Why Bitcoin? Is it cryptocurrency? And what's got you interested in, in cryptocurrency? What got you, into, you know, what got, made you decide that ETF was the best place to get it? You know, uh, these types of things get us more into the details and away from the, um, the assumption of just, like you said, three more questions, pass the ball three more times. That's a great, uh, great, great advice there. Yeah. I also tend to find that and this, I realize that this sounds kind of weird, but it, clients don't always call you for advice, you know, and there's more than there's more. And we talk to our spouses, you know, our partners or our kids, you know, and we, we always kind of assume that if someone's coming to me with a question, advisors notoriously, because you're, literally in your job title that you would advise but sometimes people just want to talk and so it you can ask that you can say hey i i can't tell if you're directly asking me for advice right now or if this is just like you just want to have a decision partner you just want to like talk through some stuff which which one are you going for just just knowing then that your job as the advisor is not to just spit out all the stuff that you were thinking but to just maybe brainstorm with the client, you know, this can make a huge difference. I, I think that uh, 
sometimes we overlook all the different ways that we can actually show up to a conversation. And the longer you have your client, there's more variations to the way that your relationship can actually be. And it's not always just about the advice. And I, I think that it's okay to ask. Takeaway. That's a great bullet point takeaway is define the expectation. Like, mm -hmm. what are you really, what do you need out of this conversation? Don't assume uh, yeah. that I know what you need, that, that I need to give you advice. Um, is, are you really asking me what Bitcoin, what Bitcoin ETF should I buy? Or are you, um, asking you already buy the Bitcoin ETF and you are calling for validation. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Or is it just that you're, you know, you had a friend talk about it and you're not interested in buying it. It's just that one of your friends talked about it and you're interested and it's always interesting to you because they made a big case about it. And so it's got you interested in it. Um, yeah, that's a, that's, that's, that's good. Um, we talked about clients getting stuck and what I'm, and I, I guess I should probably say prospects and this can happen with clients as well. But um, prospects get stuck. You know, they come in, they do the interrogation meeting. I mean, I mean, the discovery meeting. Um, <laughs> I do the first meeting and then it seems like things are going well. And then they kind of, they kind of don't move. And it seemed like they, we, we had defined the needs and it seemed, it seemed like we defined why they've not hired another advisor. They tell us it's just, why are clients getting stuck? And I know you've talked in some of your work about, um, you know, about this. So talk to me about clients getting stuck. What are, what are we missing? Well, there can be a lot of reasons that people get stuck, you know, so that, that's something to think about. I, I think it's, you know, you were making the joke about discovery versus interrogation. I actually think that this one happens maybe more often than what we recognize as, you know, so the person called and they were worried about their restricted stock options. You, you say, okay, I can help you with that. No problem. So then they come in, they're in the discovery meeting and you're asking them things about 529 plans and you're asking them things about old 401ks and you're asking them things about Roth conversions and you're asking them things about, you know, all this stuff and they reckon their insurance and their whatever. They recognize crap, <laughs> you know, like I was worried about my restricted stock option and now it just seems like my financial life is total freaking chaos. What this does to people's motivation is like, we know like from sports, you know, that like a certain amount of stress is really good, too much stress, not good. And the same thing can happen in financial planning that like, if you just keep stacking, which I think many financial planners think, oh yeah, I'm showing my expertise. I'm showing all the different ways that I can all help. All my value. You know, all my value. But for some people, this is just like a list of all the things that they did wrong. And that feels really painful. Like they will leave with less motivation than when they came in to get anything done. They just become overwhelmed and they can't do anything. So that can happen in a discovery meeting. Um, another thing that can happen in a discovery meeting that kind of shuts people down is that I call it a vulnerability hangover. I forget like where I got that from, but let's say that like you're talking and maybe they talk about, I don't know, they have like uh, some Walt Disney stock and they have no intention of selling it. And you're like, okay, cool. You know, you're thinking like legacy account. And so you just happen to ask like, where'd you get that? And they say, oh yeah, my grandpa. And you think, oh, okay. Tell me about your grandpa. So they start talking about, maybe it's like kind of an emotional story. 
maybe some weird stuff happened. Maybe like, you know, like it actually gets into some family drama. So in the moment that feels like, wow, this person's really sharing, like they're really opening up. Then they go home. And then they think, I hope I never see that person again for the rest of my life. We've been, we've seen that. Like if you're ever on a plane and someone just decides to like spill their guts to you, or you've been at a, a bar <laughs> and you've been the one that spilled all their guts, you know, and you think, God, I hope I never see that person again. We don't want this to happen in like that sort of intense disclosure has to happen within a safe relationship and a discovery meeting, even though there's a lot of stuff being talked about and a lot of financial things, you know, relate back to like our morals and our family history and the things that we learn, like it's going to dredge up stuff anyway, but to dig too far into that and, and essentially leave the client with a vulnerability hangover, they're not going to call you back. They don't want to see you again. So you can, you can list off too many things and make them feel bad. You know, you can get too deep too fast and then they don't want to talk to you. You know, these can be total non-starters. Not that you necessarily did anything wrong, but like yeah. just the emotion and motivation was drained out of the client. Yeah, there's a certain amount of, you know, in sales, you can call this selling past the close. That's taking a different angle of it. You know, this, this psychological uh, angle is saying, you can create emotional baggage for people and psychological cognitive baggage that that this that's is now associated with this relationship. Yikes. For looking at it from the sales angle is selling past the close is if there's a reason for us to work together and you you keep and I think you called it pain stacking or something like that in one of your writings. Uh, you keep, and then there's this, and then there's this, and then there's this. It reminds me, when advisor I used to work with, and I would get referrals from his firm. He'd sit down, and I would, I would talk to the, uh, to the clients he would refer. And we'd come to the, what the client needed and ready to get, move forward. And as we start getting into talking about paperwork and lab, we need to move forward. Then it was just, and then they'll do this, and then they'll do this, and they help people with it. And it's just one thing after another. And literally had to, man, please stop, stop. We've got someone ready to move forward. They've got a problem we can solve right now. They don't really want, you know, they, they call it, it's like this. You call, I call you to my house because I had hail damage and I'm going to get, I know I need a new roof and stuff. And you're like, well, we can do the, we can do this. We can do this. We can also put some new things in your yard. And I'm like, dude, stop. But now you just, all I hear is more money, more of my time. Right. And now you're just creating a bigger and bigger load. Like I had wrapped my head around, I'm going to have to get a new roof and go through the hassle of this. But I wasn't mentally prepared for this to take two years. And you'll hear planners sometimes say that is, you know, we're not going, we're going to do this and then we're going to do this and then we're going to do this. Hey, you know, like there's other services we offer. Other things are going to, are going to come up. And, you know, maybe there may, do you want to hear a brief overview of these other things that we do for you uh, over time? But I mean, you can get so deep into build the value that you're actually just creating such a load. Um, and that's, that's the selling past the close. When you sell past the close, um, you're not doing anyone any favors. And I really like this spin you're putting on it, not my spin, but this angle you're taking is, the cognitive load and the 
mm-hmm. uh, the emotional load. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that, that they're going home with exhaustion from your conversation. Now you're associated with exhaustion. Yeah. I don't want to go back there. They're just going to oh. list off more things I didn't do. And yeah. I, I tell my students and, you know, on the articles and stuff like that, that like if they've come in to talk to you about, I don't know, that they had a big tax bill or whatever, that's painful enough. That that got them in the door. You know, you can pour more salt in that wound if you want. You know, if you ask them some, so like, okay, so you have a tax problem. Is this the first year you've had this happen? No? Okay. You know, like, well, what if, you know, what happened in other years? How'd you deal with that? Okay, you didn't. Okay. Uh, you know, like, if you let them build up the pain for that one problem that they came in with. And at the end of the meeting, you say, hey, well, we we can work on tax things. You know, here's what our process is like. Let's get started. They're going to be like, okay. <laughs> you know, you, you don't have to add more pain. You can just make the one thing that they were actually motivated to do something about more painful and then go and get them to do something. You know, this is like the other thing, like, uh, Brian Portnoy, a friend of mine with uh, Shaping Wealth, you know, he talks a lot about don't talk about goals, talk about pain, you know, and calls our anti-goals conversations or people are like, OK, yeah, retirement, like retirement's out there. It's like way in the future. It sounds like a good idea, but it's not anything you can do right now. You know, so what's the pain? Like you hate your boss. Do You hate your commute. You know, if you're going to get somebody to make change right now related to this future retirement place, you have to find the pain of right now. And so, you know, try like as the advisor, you have to understand that dance, you know, between the two, the connection between the here, but also the future. And I think that it can be really fun to do stuff like that and to think about it, like to think about it in that way. But, you know, this, this is the importance of psychology. You know, it drives me crazy when people call them like soft skills, you know, like, no, these are like human skills. Like you, you will be a better human. You will have better human interactions if you understand the way people think, yourself included. You know, I love to ask advisors. You say that having an advisor is so important. Do you have an advisor? They don't. So, <laughs> you know, just something to think about. And this is not to be mean to advisors, but I wish that they had to sit in that seat, you know, like when was the last time Russell or you, Joshua, sat down and you had to talk about every financial decision that you made? Oh, gosh. (laughs) It doesn't seem like a fun idea. And yet we like, I don't understand why my client doesn't want to talk to me about that. Really? No. (laughs) Like, really? You don't understand why they wouldn't want to talk about that? Okay. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's also the knowing versus, um, versus doing. Right. And that's what we're trying to do is actually get behavioral action. And, um, you know, I, I've been thinking about this because I've been thinking, man, you know, I've, uh, maybe I need to get because I'm into fitness and but I need to lose some weight. I've been focused on all these other things. and I want to get re- refocused something. And maybe I just need a coach or something like that to tell me what to do and hold me to it. Because here's the thing. I know enough to do what I'm supposed to do to lose the weight I want to lose. I know a lot in the gym. I know a lot of, I've done this for many years. Why don't I do the things I'm supposed to do? I do some of them. I do all of them some of the time and some of them all the time. 
but I need someone to kind of hold me to it. I need, I, I, I mean, that, that coaching and that uh, presence in there of helping me, of, of helping someone to get the actual things done. And that's where a lot of it is not always new advice. And I think that we forget that at times is there's always got to be advice. No, a lot of it is keeping you from making mistakes and holding you accountable to the things you, that, that you said you were going to do. Um, the fear is, is, is a, an issue that I think I want to unpack with you some, because, you know, we, we tend to think about selling the fear and you just mentioned it, you know, um, you know, the pain, right? Well, pain is associated with fear and, you know, a lot of, a lot of advisors kind of use this volatility in the market because, you know, I was literally hearing advisors say this every day in 2017 when, when volatility was ridiculously low is with all the volatility in the market right now, I'm giving you a call. So, you know, try to get people and, and, and stir up some pain. Yeah. Loss aversion is rough. For there you go. <laughs> yeah. So when you start thinking about fear and about pain, but then I'm also, I, I have to think about this in the context of, okay, but you also just talked about, I don't want to overwhelm people and start pain stacking and they never want to see me again. So how should I think about pain if I'm trying to kind of balance this pain and fear of, you know, fear is really the anxiety or expectation of future pain, right? It's either pain now or the expectation of pain, right? Balancing that with, I don't want to pain stack and do too much of this. What, sure. where's, how do I understand that center ground? I think, I think one way to think about it, um, and I'm actually really glad that you use the word anxiety. So there's, um, there's a difference between stress and anxiety. We use them interchangeably. A lot of times they show up, you know, co comorbidity, you know, they show up together, um, but they're different. And here's how they're different. People usually see the stress in front of them, like some, some outside thing will happen. You, know, you now have these restricted stock options. They're like, you know, six months from investing and you're kind of freaked out. You know, some people, this is why we see stress in others and, and well, stress in some and not in others, is that more than one person can look at that same situation and say, I know what to do. And when you know what to do, stress doesn't arise. When you don't know what to do, stress does arise. The thing with stress is that if you can get people to the top of the curve, but not push them over, they're very motivated to do something. We like to just take stress and like squash it. You give somebody some stress and give them a list of things to do, they will knock it out. If you create anxiety in someone, people shut down. Anxiety, people are like, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to deal with that. I just want to look away. You know, I don't feel safe. They're not, they're not in do mode. People in, with stress are in do mode. People in anxiety, not do mode totally shut down. And so if, if they have come to you and said, Hey, this thing is bothering me. They're in do mode. They've done something they've called you. And so it's, you don't have to add more to that cake. You know, the cake is baked. Just put some icing on the top, talk about your process, ask them like what they've been doing up to this point related to this thing that bothered them and don't deviate, you know, get them to sign up. Once they're a client and you've worked through, you know, what it's like to whatever problem they came in with, you know, now you can revisit, you know, some of the other things that they might want to go through. And now within this trusted relationship where they know that they can get stuff done, they're more likely to do it and the anxiety won't necessarily be invoked. 
So, you know, remember that people cannot kind of like only hold more than seven things in their brain at once. It's kind of like, why are our uh, social security numbers and phone numbers are kind of like a particular way, you know, you just can't, you can't do that. So, and people creating financial plans, I know this because of the research at the Kitsis platform, most financial advisors are creating financial plans with anywhere between 12 to like 25 things in them. Well, I would say that's probably five things too many, you know, especially for that first financial plan. So, like, don't, don't overwhelm. People can only hold so many things in their brain at once. They're typically only really ready to attack a couple of those. And so let those be your focus. If people seem disinterested, if they're like, yeah, I hear you. This seems more important to me. Focus on that. Get something done. You as the advisor might be like, oh, I'm really worried about this. And so do tit for tat. Like, okay, I hear you. that This is the most important one for you, but I'm a fiduciary. This is the most important one for me. Can we just agree that we're going to do these two first? Don't try to do all of them at once and don't show them like more than seven at one time. You know, it's just overwhelming for people. Yeah. So, this reminds yeah. me of a, of a referral I got once. And the, um, this was a, I'm, I'm going to call her the grandmother because she had three daughters and a granddaughter. And so the, the, her spouse had passed away several months before, but he had been a big options trader. And he had long dated options, short dated options and all over. So he'd been, he'd passed a couple of months, but he had all these options portfolio. And so they look at the portfolio and they don't understand the options. And, you know, they all think he was brilliant. And so, and, and maybe he was, but the last few months of life, it, it, he, you know, he wasn't quite there like he had been before. So you're at the one, on the, at the same time, you don't want to call the baby ugly because this is his portfolio. And he was a very successful investor for many years. Right. In the last couple of months that he wasn't all there. Right. And so they had talked to someone, they introduced him to an advisor, several advisors there in a couple of days. And it was, this is our process. Here's the thing, get your financial plan. And it was just, I can't sleep at night because there, I don't understand these things. And I get online and read about options and I hear about leverage and I hear about this and I hear about, the, I don't understand what's in the positions. And finally I get pitched as the options expert and I come in and, yeah, we do all the other stuff, the planning and all the other things, but it's, here's a portfolio that it, they feel like it's on fire. And it's, hey, first thing we need to do is I look at these positions. Um, a third of these need to be unwound this week. A um, few other things, you know, that, that that's it. They're, they're on fire. You're right. They're on fire. <laughs> we need to, we need to fix this. And then, um, you know, and I basically just laid out, hey, here's how we work. We'll fix these positions. You know, we have strategies. We, we can talk about what we'll do next. But the, the main thing right now is stop the bleeding, stop the problem, fix the positions. Some of these positions we'll probably need to work out of over a couple of months because that's, but that's another story. Here's the paperwork and set the next meeting and get the, get the, get the authority to fix these positions. Tell them briefly, I'm going to do it. Next meeting, I get three daughters show up as well. And it's, he's fixed it. And one of them signs up with me right then. The next month, the other two signed up with me because it's, he fixed our problem. And it, everything else was, okay, you can you fixed our biggest problem. And what else can you do? What else do we need? Well, you're going to need a plan for the future. You're going to need us to reinvest the money. You're going to need all these things. They didn't care about any of that stuff. Once I fixed the problem, mm -hmm. then it was, I was the default. I've earned trust. I got it done quickly. And I, I honed in on what was most important to them. 
Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, it's about what's most important to them, not your process. You know, it's what's most important to them, not your fancy CFA. You know, it's not what's important. No offense. Uh, but, you know, it's what's important to them, not your CPA, not, not a CPA or CFA or C other things, you know, like all that's good. They probably are there because they kind of know what that designation means. You know, they want to talk about their problem. And there is a lot of relationship building happens for when you listen, you know, to what's, what's going on, hear their issue and try to work together to build it. Um, you know, and that doesn't mean at the risk of not being a fiduciary and, you know, looking at things holistically, you can do that. But then thinking systematically about how am I going to deliver this information? What is most impactful? How can I get them started? Is this a planned presentation meeting or am I trying to create a plan engagement meeting? You know, what, what am I like, am I trying to raise their intrinsic motivation to actually implement some of this stuff? Yeah. Yeah, and part of that you know, even navigating down. one head, sorry. Oh, I was going to say, it's, it's, it's part of relating this to my story is part of the story was, hey, once we fix this problem, we're going to be able to slow down. I know this is the most important thing to you. We're going to get this done. There's going to be the next conversation is going to be, we're going to take a deep breath and we're going to start our process. We have a process that if you hadn't come to us with a portfolio on fire, we would have done this a little different. We're going to take a deep breath and start from the top. And setting those expectations is, is very helpful as well. Yeah. Yeah. They're in do mode. Don't stop the momentum. You know, yeah. like, keep it going. So I, I think that that's, I think that that's really important. And, and it's so, it's so hard to think about all these things. Like, I just want to point, put that out there that like, I've been doing this for a really long time, <laughs> you know, and I like have a job where I get to constantly talk to advisors about what's happening. So like, if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't, know half the crap that lady's talking about and like i'm not very good at asking follow-up questions and that you know that just seems like really intense like it's okay you know we can you can start slow don't feel overwhelmed i did not mean to pain stack <laughs> um, <laughs> like there, I, I have led you into the very you the very thing you wanted me about that's not the point of this like i <laughs> Uh, I will say that like my articles, I really do try to do just like one thing, you know, so that it's not pain stacking or talk about one client issue, you know, so that it doesn't feel so overwhelming, you know, things like communication skills can be developed in all kinds of ways. And this is the other fun thing about communication skills that, you know, we've kind of alluded to throughout this is that being a good communicator with your clients, you know, bleeds over into being a great communicator with your partner, your friends, your teenage daughters, you know, like it's, it's very, very helpful in life to be a good communicator. And I think that, you know, where you can kind of only like flex your tax knowledge, you know, when you're talking to people about tax, like you can flex communication knowledge anytime you want. I have a good friend of mine. One of my favorite communication skills is mirroring because it's super easy. Just repeat back what people say, typically like the last three words. And you might think that this doesn't work, but a friend of mine, her, I'm closer to the wife, but her husband is a psychologist and her husband is a clever dude and he thinks he's very clever. So he, she's going to a party, it's a work party. And he says, you know, I'm just gonna repeat the last three words everybody says tonight. And she's like, please God, 
don't do that. Don't, don't mind trick people, you know, like I'm not into it. And he's like, I'm doing it. So he goes to this party. My friend calls me later in the week and she goes, do you know what happened? He, he constantly just repeated what people said. Three different people came up to me and told me what a great conversationalist my husband was. <laughs> I love it. You know, people would be like, oh, yeah, I'm going, you know, to uh, Italy. And you'd be like, oh, my God, going to Italy. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go to Rome and do some stuff. Like, oh, my God, Rome. And you're going to do stuff. Like, people love it. And they don't notice that you're only saying the last three things. So, like, when you are in a conversation with a client and you're trying to figure out, like, what do I say? Like, what were those clever, you know, what was Megan talking about in that, you know, like what people mean, what people feel. Okay. I'm not gonna be able to do that. Just repeat their last three words. You know, okay. You've got four, four, one case. Okay. Four, four, one case. Tell me about that. Well, you know, I feeling kind of confused, confused. Okay. You know, more about that. Well, you know, I just want like more organization in my financial life. Okay. More organization in your financial life. I like that. More about that. What would that feel like? You, you don't have to even think, just repeat what they say. People love it. I might, use, I might use this for the rest of my life. For the rest of your life? <laughs> that, that after, you know, after, after a bunch of awkward conversations at the 4th of July barbecue, man, I wish we had done this last week. That's all <laughs> yeah, it totally works. People love it. Yeah, I, I'm, t I'm totally trying this. This is great. Because I'm, I'm the absolute worst. At ch There's a reason I'm not, I've never been in sales and I have no problem with sales. And never really been um, like a customer contact person. In any, and and if I had known this little trick, I could have had a completely different career. Yeah, completely different career. I, I can't wait. Yeah, there you go. You just did it. I caught. That's the problem now. Is <laughs> yeah. Once anybody that has watched this, yeah, now knows that. So now, if now if I try that and somebody's seen this, going, I know what you're doing, Russell. And then I I, I don't know where to go with that. Then you can go back to the part out of the podcast. We're not yeah. editing this out. Yeah. <laughs> cool. You know, there, there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, I think it, it's easy to say art versus science, but I think that a lot of science is simple. Or sorry, a lot of what we call art is simply science that we poorly understand. That there is something about this that is manageable, understandable, systematic. Um, you know, a framework that we can we can use to go to to, to do this. this. Megan, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I want to kind of um, summarize a few of the things that we've we've talked about today, and maybe maybe have a few final remarks on it. Um, you know, I really liked what you kind of talked about with the um, you know, understanding how someone's coping with something, not just the facts of it, but also the coping. Um, you know, kind of under also the understanding what someone is expecting you in the moment. Don't assume what value you can add to a conversation. That can be, are we brainstorming? Are we just talking through this? Um, are we actually asking for advice, right? Um, is this is this a change for now? I think that, that interesting point you made about, you know, I think it was anxiety versus stress. I would have thought of that as anxiety is is the anticipation of future pain while stress is current pain. And I think of that, um, you know, with my weightlifting background, I've, I've, I've talked as I, as I, I've trained a nephew with this. I said, Hey, this is, you feel, fear. Oh, I'm not afraid. Yes, you are. Say it. I'm afraid. This is what it is. This is what fear feels like. Feel it, accept it, call it what it is. Now we're going to go get under the bar and do it anyway. 
We're going to feel the fear and call it fear. Once you're under there, now you're super, you're, you're more focused. And when you're just thinking about it, you're not focused. You're scattered because it's anxiety. Anxiety is scattering. That's another thing I think you can do when you can think is someone in anxiety mode or they in do mode, like you're calling do mode. To me, do mode is stress, right? Do, and, and when you're under, you feel like you're under the bar. If I'm under the bar, I'm talking about squats. I've got the bar on my back. I'm under stress right now. And that stress is very focusing. And so I want to get it done. If I'm not at the point where I'm thinking about the future, it's not actually under the stress. It's going to be hard for me to want to move forward and get under the bar. Because you're actually saying the next choice is to actually get under stress. Right now it's anxiety. Now you're actually pushing me into, into stress. Anxiety is inside. Stress happens from the outside. And yeah. so it's like, that is why we do get anticipation anxiety for yeah, sure, yeah. but it, it manifests inside. There's nothing that happened out here in the world. It's, it's coming yeah. from inside of me and it kind of makes people not want to do stuff. Awesome. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, Dr. Megan Lurts, you can find her on kitesees.com. Uh, anything else you want to promote while you're on the show today, Megan, any of your writings or anything like that? Uh, I mean, most like almost 90% of the things that I write, probably 99% of the things that I write are on the kitsis.com yeah. platform. And I do webinars and speaking events and stuff like that through, through the kitsis.com platform as well. I mean, you're welcome to come take a class with me at Kansas state or Columbia. It's a lot of fun. I am on Twitter. It's my name, but my name is spelled kind of weird. It's M E G H A A N L. That's my Twitter. And I'm on LinkedIn also, if you, it sounds very weird, but literally if you Google me, I'm the only me that comes up there. I'm not, okay. there's no other Megan Lurtzes with my odd spelling. So it's, I'm pretty easy to find. That's wonderful. It's it, easy to find. I, um, are you, what about threads? Did you get on threads? It's been, around for, a, it's been around for a day and a half. Well, something that I have a lot of anxiety about is uh -huh. social media. Like really? it totally freaks me out. I can't imagine that there are that many people in the world that want to hear what I have to say. Like I, I get that there's a small number, like maybe, you know, yeah. you and Joshua that like are interested in what I have to say, but weirds me out that like hundreds of people, if not yeah. thousands of people are curious. And I'm like, that's weird. So I, it just, my uh, introvertness like really comes out strong when it comes to social media. So I feel the same way all the time about social media. And then every so often I'll see someone and be like, why does anyone care what that person has to say? And they got a million followers. So right, right. Yeah, it's very I don't understand uh, a lot of that, but um, appreciate you for, for, for being here today, Dr. Lertz. Um, those who are tuning in, like us, follow us, share this. We appreciate your, your attendance today. Um, thanks for being here. Bye, everyone. Mm -hmm.